Hello, and welcome back to Wilderness Medicine Updates, the show for providers at the edges. I'm your host, Patrick Fink. Today, we're going to begin a multi-part series on resuscitation of the patient buried in an avalanche. I hope to make this interesting and useful to providers at all levels, beginning with the basics of physiology, moving on to basic life support, and then discussing advanced care of these patients for professional providers. Today, we're going to delve into the physiology of someone who is buried in an avalanche, as that understanding is critical to be able to grok why certain metrics like burial time, core temperature, are critical turning points in our resuscitation algorithm. Before we get started, let me say thanks to John of the Mountains for giving the podcast a written review on Apple iTunes that helps us reach still more ears. And thanks to your downloads and reviews, Wilderness Medicine Updates is now climbing the ranking of the top wilderness medicine podcasts out there. Must not be a crowded space. I also wanted to address a question from a listener after our recent episode on After the Avalanche with Michael Buchanan. She rightly pointed out that she was surprised that a paramedic was recommending hands-only CPR for avalanche victims, and I think that deserves a quick exploration. So when Michael was saying that, and we should have clarified this, he was saying that he teaches hands-only CPR in untrained rescuers who have no CPR training, and that is the recommendation of the American Heart Association, because they found that if you have no CPR training, then you tend not to give any breaths, And you also tend not to do CPR because you're scared of giving breaths. It's still right to note that asphyxia is the leading cause of death for these patients, so rescue breathing plays an important role in the resuscitation of avalanche victims. We're going to get into that more, but if you're skiing in the backcountry and you're not trained in CPR, you're doing your partners a disservice and you should get trained. With that, let's jump into the physiology of the critically buried avalanche victim. So how do you end up in cardiac arrest after an avalanche? There are three main causes, and those are trauma, hypothermia, and asphyxia. To better understand how these can cause cardiac arrest, I think it's helpful to think about how each of these impact the functions of the heart. The heart is comprised of cells, as with most tissues of the body. These cells have metabolic needs that are pretty high, as they're constantly working to contract and circulate blood in the body. They require a source of energy, such as glucose or ketones, and they require oxygen to be able to process those energy sources. As they consume energy, they, like other tissues in the body, produce carbon dioxide as a byproduct of that cellular metabolism. For this reason, cardiac arrest from asphyxia or hypothermia is fundamentally different from someone who has a heart attack while walking through an airport terminal. This is a setting where cardiac arrest saves are remarkably high through the presence of AEDs and lots of bystanders. The person who has a cardiac arrest in the airport has generally suffered a blockage of one of the arteries that supplies blood to the heart, the coronary arteries, causing the heart to become angry due to a lack of oxygen and fuel. They go into a degenerative heart rhythm, and the heart stops pumping blood to the rest of the body. They can potentially be rescued from that situation if a bystander circulates blood for them by performing chest compressions, and shocks their heart with an AED to restore a normal heart rhythm. An avalanche victim does not have a blocked artery. They have a full-body physiological problem that is preventing the heart from functioning. And we're going to dive into each of those now. Trauma. Let's start with thinking of how trauma can cause cardiac arrest. 
There can be direct trauma to the heart itself, damaging the tissues beyond their ability to function. This is game over. It is not salvageable. Trauma can also cause significant bleeding into the abdomen, the lung spaces, the thigh around the femur, or onto the snow around the body. If that happens, there is no blood for the heart to circulate. Game over again. Finally, there can be trauma that causes increased pressure inside the chest cavity and prevents the heart from expanding, filling, and pumping. This can be due to air leaking from a damaged lung, called pneumothorax, or due to bleeding, called hemothorax. These can be treated if they're recognized and if an advanced provider is present immediately, which is rarely the cause in avalanche burial. So with that, if someone has suffered an arrest as a result of trauma, this is generally not salvageable in the field. Hypoxia. Okay, so our rider wasn't killed by trauma. Next, let's consider hypoxia or oxygen deprivation as a cause of death. If, as the avalanche comes to a stop, the rider's head and chest are buried beneath the snow, that's what we call a critical burial, and the next question becomes the availability of oxygen. When those pretty little snowflakes that we like to ski go tumbling downhill in an avalanche, the collisions and movement between them make their little arms break off until they're all little bits of ice, and at a microscopic level, there's some liquid water as well. When that avalanche comes to a stop, all of those tiny particles are smushed very close together to one another and then freeze solid. That's why avalanche debris is no fun to ski, and it is very hard and chunky. But importantly, because the debris is made of tiny frozen particles, there's very little air contained in the snow when it comes to a rest. It's mostly solid. The worst case scenario for our rider is that they come to be critically buried with both their nose and mouth packed with snow. If that happens, there's no way for air to go in or out, snowpack be damned. So this rider is going to die very quickly if they're not extricated. As with a brain and heart deprived of all oxygen, but that which is in their lungs, at that moment, they have maybe six to eight minutes before their brain cells start to die and their heart stops having the oxygen that it needs to continue to function. Because total blockage of the airway with snow is such bad news, it's important to recognize when we ex extricate an avalanche victim. Bookmark that thought and we'll come back to it in the resuscitation algorithm. But let's say that our rider is both smart and lucky, and as they come to a stop in the avalanche, they put an arm across their face and make a little air pocket. They're still critically buried, but their airway is not occluded, and they can breathe. A new kind of clock is now ticking. Because there's little in the way of air spaces in this avalanche debris, the ability of the snowpack to diffuse or spread away gases is very limited. So there's a kind of invisible bubble or helmet around our rider's head that itself contains a limited supply of oxygen. How long they can last in this state will depend quite a bit on the size of that air pocket. They may have 10 minutes, possibly more. This is why 80 to 90% of critically buried victims will be dead at 40 minutes. The oxygen timer just runs out. So how can a rescuer treat asphyxia? Well, for both the rider with the occluded airway and the one with the air pocket, there's going to be a period of time between which they stop breathing for themselves and the time when they are truly dead, meaning when they can no longer be resuscitated. For this reason, in victims who are rescued in under 60 minutes and aren't showing signs of life, giving rescue breaths first and then performing CPR is worth a try. We want to exchange some gases, and then circulate that fresh oxygen to the heart and brain, 
and see if we can pull those riders back from the brink. If those maneuvers don't work, then they were just applied too late. But our rider here, she's lucky. She was critically buried among large chunks of debris, and she had an airbag backpack that deflated to give her a still larger air pocket. She has a whopper of an air pocket. Unfortunately, she's also buried quite deeply, so it's going to take her partner a long time to dig her out. More than an hour, in fact. Now we encounter the final cause of death in avalanche burial. Hypothermia. We all have an intuitive understanding that refrigeration helps keep things fresh longer. Why is that? Whether it's the metabolism of the bacteria on your cold cuts, or the cellular processes of a buried skier, the majority of biological processes in living organisms require energy input, and these processes are also facilitated by proteins called enzymes. At higher temperatures, there may be less energy that we need to input for our bacteria to grow on your smoked turkey slices, while at colder temperatures, all of these cellular processes needed for life slow down. Enzymes don't work as well. Reactions proceed, but more slowly. Cooled sufficiently, many processes stop entirely. Our buried rider, ensconced in snow, begins cooling down the moment that they're buried. How quickly they will cool depends on their body size, their clothing, their sweat, and environmental factors. An average rate of cooling is about 3 degrees Celsius per hour, but cooling rates of up to 8.5 degrees of Celsius per hour have been reported. For those of us unfortunately stuck in Fahrenheit, the lower limit of normal body temperature is about 36 degrees Celsius. Now, hypothermia could be its own topic, and I'm sure we'll get there eventually. But for now, take it from me that 30 degrees Celsius is an important turning point in the human body temperature, as this is what constitutes severe hypothermia, a status that's largely defined by the likelihood of altered mental status and abnormal heart rhythms, including cardiac arrest. That brings us back to our rider with no pulse. If their body temperature is less than 30 degrees Celsius, it's possible that the reason that they look dead is not because of trauma, not because of hypoxia, but actually because they're really, really cold. We just said that you can't cool terribly quickly with cooling from 36 degrees to 30 degrees or below, possibly taking two hours. If it was fast, could it be an hour? An hour is the breakpoint that we end up using, as it's generous and we will resuscitate everyone who has a chance of being hypothermic. These patients who have been refrigerated, essentially, have the potential to be resuscitated with good neurological outcomes, and for that reason, we will do CPR and care for them for much longer until they can get to a hospital where they can be rewarmed. Importantly, we need to recognize the other side of this coin which is that anyone who's dug out in under an hour basically cannot be hypothermic as a cause of death, unless they ended up in a creek or some kind of flowing water. If our rider is dug out in under 60 minutes and looks dead, we presume that that cardiac arrest is due to either trauma or hypoxia, and we treat those causes. But we don't do CPR on these people and transport them for hours to a hospital, looking dead, thinking that we can rewarm them and successfully resuscitate them. So, over 60 minutes of avalanche burial, without an occluded airway, will resuscitate for much longer, until our rider can be rewarmed. If they're buried for less than 60 minutes, we won't perform prolonged resuscitation and warming. 
Now, you physiology studs out there are probably wondering about that other gas that we regularly exchange, carbon dioxide, which leads us to the topic of hypercarbia. Hypercarbia is when the concentration of CO2 becomes elevated in the lungs and blood. CO2, or carbon dioxide, is a gas which is the byproduct of cellular respiration, aka energy production. As we break down sugar for energy, we make water and CO2, and that CO2 needs to get out of our body somehow. Accumulation of the CO2 in the blood is actually what is the stimulus for you to breathe and makes you feel miserable if you try to hold your breath beyond one minute. Oxygen, while more important, doesn't play a role here except in some uniquely ill individuals who most certainly aren't out backcountry touring at altitude. In contrast to oxygen, which is a vital component for cells to keep living, the accumulation of the waste product CO2 creates much less problem for life. Humans can tolerate some pretty spectacular accumulations of CO2, which I see regularly in my ER practice in those with emphysema or obstructive sleep apnea. Very high CO2 levels don't cause death, though they can cause confusion and altered mental status. That doesn't mean that CO2 plays no role for our buried rider, it just means that it's not a critical one on which we base our decisions. CO2 dissolved in the blood complexes with one of the main buffers in our blood, bicarbonate, to form a compound called carbonic acid. This means that higher levels of CO2 in the body causes the blood to become acidic. Acid-base balance is another important condition that we have to maintain for our cells to function normally, and when blood becomes acidic, some cellular processes are impeded. In practical terms, it has been shown that buried humans, in whom carbon dioxide levels increase, will actually cool faster than those with a normal carbon dioxide. So this acidosis is not good for our buried rider, but it's never the cause for their cardiac arrest. If this is all a lot for you right now, you can basically forget about carbon dioxide. Finally, there's one last stop on the physiology train that we need to understand, and that's hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is an elevated potassium level in the blood. Potassium, while critical for life, is also tolerated in a very narrow range in the blood. While low potassium can cause some significant problems of its own, elevated potassium, called hyperkalemia, can readily cause abnormal heart rhythms and cardiac arrest. The majority of the potassium in the body is not circulating in the blood, but is intracellular, or within cells. Some of that potassium can shift out of the cells if the blood becomes more acidic, but truly high potassium levels in the blood are only seen when cellular death starts to happen. When cells die, their cell walls can break down and they can leak potassium into their environment. For this reason, when our rider who is buried for longer than 60 minutes is transported to the hospital for rewarming, one of the things that we look at in hospital to see if there's any hope, see what I did there, is to check their blood potassium level. If it's above 8, then we know that cellular death has occurred and it's not worth the cost and risk of rewarming the patient. They are dead. This isn't a fact that a medical provider in the field needs to understand in depth except that you'll see it appear on the algorithm. It can also explain why the patient that you've worked on for hours to get them to the hospital is so quickly declared deceased when they arrive. It's not out of disrespect for your efforts, but a result of a concrete marker that this patient has passed a point of no return. In summary, we consider an avalanche victim to be critically buried when their head and chest are buried beneath the snow surface. 
If during the avalanche they suffer trauma that causes the heart to stop, there's almost nothing that can be done in the field to reverse that problem. If they're not the victim of trauma, they are most likely to die of a lack of oxygen. If their mouth and nose are plugged, they may die in just a few minutes. If not occluded, they can persist longer depending on the size of the air pocket. If someone has been buried for less than 60 minutes and is in cardiac arrest, we assume that their arrest is due to either trauma or asphyxiation. Because asphyxiation is the only thing that we can treat, we focus on treating that with rescue breathing and CPR. If our rider has been buried for longer than 60 minutes, doesn't have a blocked airway, and is very cold, then they could be a victim of severe hypothermia, and we significantly extend the time that we will spend resuscitating them until they can be transported to a healthcare facility and rewarmed. In our next episode, we'll take a look at the International Commission for Alpine Rescue, or ICAR, Algorithm for the Care of Avalanche Victims. If you've been wondering, wait, what about people who aren't in cardiac arrest? We'll address that too. For now, I hope that you enjoyed this little journey through the important physiology, as I personally think that understanding is a critical part of delivering care. And I also think that the algorithm itself is much easier to understand with this groundwork. So that's all for now. Thank you for listening. If you have the 10 seconds that it takes to give the show a five-star review on iTunes, I much appreciate it. And if you want a shout out, throw a text review up there as well. This show is a passion project, not a moneymaker, and I ask you to take those 10 seconds just so that this work can have more reach. Also, tell your fellow doctor, nurse, medic, EMT, fellow med student, woofer, pal, or skiing buddy about the show if you think they'd like it. To all you practitioners out there, I salute you. And until next time, stay fit, stay focused, and have fun.